Welcome to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's time for Part 2 of Captain John Smith. Chapter 2. The Voyage of the Virginia Colony It is now nearly 300 years ago that the first successful colony set out from Blackwall, a suburb of London, to effect a settlement in the newfound land of Virginia, as the whole coast of North America was at that time called. The failure of the colony on Roanoke Island had for many years damped the ardor of English adventurers. But the success of the Spaniards, their great rivals and enemies, piqued the pride of the English, as the wealth won by Spanish gold seekers excited their cupidity. So that at the beginning of the reign of James I, it was resolved to have an English settlement in America, to win territory, and to freight ships with the precious metals. Sir Walter Raleigh, the founder of the unhappy colony on Roanoke Island, and the lifelong advocate of colonization, was at this time shut up in a dreary cell in the Tower of London, engaged in writing his history of the world to while away the hours of a long imprisonment. But Gosnold, whose voyage to the New England coast is related in the previous chapter, had been very active in promoting the present undertaking. In this he had been joined by John Smith, a soldier of fortune who had voyaged about the world, getting out of one daring adventure and into another, and who now, having returned from single combats and captivities among the Saracens, could find nothing to satisfy his appetite for danger and hardship so well as a colony in the wilds of America. A third promoter of the scheme was a London merchant named Wingfield, and fourth was a clergyman, Mr. Hunt. The latter desired to plant Christianity. Wingfield no doubt represented the commercial desire for gain, while Gosnold and Smith were voyagers and adventurers, pure and simple, loving a hard task for the very hardness of it and the honor of overcoming difficulties. The traveler of our time feels some trepidation when he sails across the ocean in a staunch steamer of several thousand tons burden. But the little colony that left Blackwall and dropped down the Thames in the rough December of 1606 had for their largest ships the Sarah Constant of 100 tons, which ship carried 70 persons and was commanded by Captain Newport. The second ship, the Godspeed, was commanded by the experienced Captain Gosnold and was of 40 tons, carrying 52 persons, while the smallest vessel of all, the Discovery, was of but 20 tons a mere sailboat, carrying twenty people on this long voyage through little-known seas into unknown lands. The seeds of a great nation were here compressed into small space and entrusted to frail craft. The people of England were very much interested in the little company that left Blackwall on the 19th of December, 1606. There was a clergyman, the Reverend Richard Hakelet, who, when he was a schoolboy and had been shown one day some books of travel and a map of the world, he then and there resolved to devote himself to geographical studies, and he became in time better informed on all such matters than any man in England in his day. The great trading companies were accustomed to consult him about their undertakings. He, with other hardy lovers of colonization, had petitioned for permission to send out this colony and he was one of the corporators of it. James I was a pedantic man, priding himself on his learning, 
which was not so great as his vanity. It is said that when George Buchanan, his preceptor, was censured for having made the king a pedant, he answered that it was the best he could make out of such a prince as he. King James was of a meddling disposition, full of overweening self-confidence, and he unfortunately took great interest in the little colony now setting forth, and had something to do with the mischievous regulations and directions by which the enterprise was well-nigh brought to destruction. There are still extant poems, sermons, and plays that show the general interest of all classes of people in the colony on its setting out and during the early years of its history. Michael Drayton, a famous poet of the time, who wrote abundantly about a great many things, gave utterance to the popular feeling in an ode full of fire. He begins, You brave heroic minds, worthy our country's name, that honor still pursue, whilst loitering hinds lurk here at home with shame. Go, and subdue. Britons, you stay too long. Quickly aboard bestow you, and with a merry gale swell your stretched sail, with vows as strong as the winds that blow you. Your course securely steer, west and by south forth keep, rocks, lee shores, nor shoals, where Aeolus scowls, you need not fear, so absolute the deep. And cheerfully at sea, success you still entice, to get the pearl and gold, and ours to behold, Virginia. Earth's only paradise. He seems to have a premonition that the English race will come to greatness in the new world, for he sings of the heroes that shall be brought forth like those from whom we came, and lastly he describes industrious Hakelet as waiting to record their voyages. But it was especially the finding of gold mines that most concerned the English public. In a play written the year before the colony sailed, while all England was agitated about it. There is a conversation between two characters who bore the significant names of Scapethrift and Seagull. The general expectation of gold from Virginia is shown up in the extravagant speech of the enthusiastic Seagull, who declares that all their dripping pans are pure gold in Virginia, and all the chains with which they chain up their streets are masses gold. All the prisoners they take are fettered in gold, and for rubies and diamonds they go forth in holy days and gather, hemmed by the seashore, to hang on their children's coats and stick in their children's caps, as commonly as our children wear saffron gilt brooches and groats with holes in hem. Not only in the poetry and the plays of the time, but in the sermons and prayers of the people, Virginia was always remembered. One prayer of a few years later ends with a petition that God may vouchsafe to go with us and we with him into Virginia. Amen and amen. Be thou the Alpha and Omega of England's plantation in Virginia, O God. The colony was to be governed under a charter drawn up, no doubt, under the eye of the fussy and foolish King James. It abounded in all guarantees for loyalty, but neglected many very important matters. There were also explicit directions about the manner of settlement and their mode of dealing with the naturals, that is, the natives of Virginia. 
"'These directions were good enough in their way. "'But the better policy would have been "'to have given military authority "'to some one competent man. "'This the projectors of the colony failed to do. "'The authority at sea was vested not in Gosnold, "'as we would have expected, "'but in Captain Newport, "'who was an experienced mariner "'and who had had the wisdom the year before "'to make the king a present "'of two living young alligators and a wild boar, "'brought from the West Indies. "'Such trifles delighted James greatly. "'From the beginning the little colony "'was beset with difficulties. "'Scarcely were they out of the Thames "'when they were met by rough weather "'and were long beaten upon "'by the rough seas of the Channel.' Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. It was six weeks before they lost sight of the English coast. But something worse than bad weather overtook them in the jealousy and discord which immediately broke out among the leading spirits of the colony. One would have supposed that while King James and the rest were busy over charters and directions, they would have been at some pains to see that the colony should be made up of such as were suitable to the work in hand. But of the hundred or more who were first settled in Virginia, fifty-three ranked as gentlemen, many of whom were dissipated young men sent off by friends who wished to be rid of them. Smith says that they were afterward dissatisfied because they did not find any of their accustomed dainties with feather beds and down pillows, taverns and alehouses in every breathing place. Neither such plenty of gold and silver and dissolute liberty as they expected. We do not wonder that, as Smith put it, the country was to them a misery, a ruin, a death, a hell. With all these gentlemen there was a small allowance of four carpenters. Twelve men were set down as laborers, but whether they were farmhands or personal servants, were not told. There was one bricklayer, one mason, one blacksmith, and one sailor. But there were also a barber, and a tailor, and a drummer, while there were four boys, and some others whose manner of life is not set down. From the beginning, as we have said, this ill-assorted crowd divided into factions. Such skillful and vigorous spirits as Bartholomew Gosnold and John Smith were no doubt outspoken against the ascendancy of incompetence among the emigrants. Such men the brusque and brave Captain John calls nearly projecting verbal and idle contemplators. No doubt Smith was himself more of a soldier than a diplomat, and that he stirred up a good deal of anger by his blunt speeches. But there was one patient and peacemaking man in the ships, and that was Mr. Robert Hunt, preacher, as he is set down in the list. This good clergyman was so sick at the beginning of the voyage that his life was despaired of, 
and though the vessels lay for weeks off the downs in sight of his home, yet he never once proposed to give over his enterprise. With the water of patience and his godly exhortations, but chiefly by his true devoted examples, he quenched those flames of envy and dissension. The ships loitered at the Canaries and in the West Indies, consuming their provisions, which were scant at the beginning, and losing the opportunity for spring planting. So high a pitch did their dissensions reach that at one of the islands it was even proposed to hang the impetuous and restless Captain Smith, who probably showed much discontent at this waste of five months in a voyage for which two would have been sufficient. The accounts are conflicting, but there seems no doubt that a mutiny was intended and that Smith was suspected of a share in it. After the ships had three days passed their reckoning without finding land, Captain Radcliffe, of the smallest vessel, seriously proposed that they should turn about and sail back again, probably on the supposition that the continent was lost. While this proposition was under advisement, there came up a lucky storm which drove the ships to the mouth of the James River, and settled in the minds of the navigators any doubts concerning the whereabouts of Virginia. The first cape which they saw was named, for the Prince of Wales, Cape Henry. The northern cape they named Cape Charles, for the king's second son, afterwards King Charles I. A landing was made on Cape Charles by thirty men, who were suddenly attacked by five Indians. Two of the white men were dangerously wounded in this first encounter with the Naturals. The country within the capes the voyagers found to be what they regarded as the pleasantest land known. Here are mountains, hills, plains, valleys, rivers and brooks, all running most pleasantly into a fair bay, compressed but for the mouth with fruitful and delightsome land. We are assured that heaven and earth never agreed better to frame a place for man's habitation, were it fully manned and inhabited by industrious people. And indeed, at the season of their arrival, the banks on the James River are magnificent with the blossoms of the redbud and dogwood, so that after their tiresome voyage, the land must have been indeed delightful to their eyes. After much debate, the place ever since called Jamestown was selected as the site of the colony. Gosnold strongly opposed this selection, while Smith favored it. The event has proved the wisdom of Gosnell's judgment. It was on low ground and never wholesome. The inroads of the water have since turned the peninsula into an island, and there is now only a ruined church tower to mark the site of the first permanent colony in the United States. And we can add that it's been turned into a fine park and museum. As soon as they had landed, they opened the box that contained the names of the members of the council, which up to that time had been kept secret from everybody. Captain Smith, who had been under arrest on suspicion for the last three months of the voyage, was among those named, but he was formally excluded by the other members. On what pretext, we're not told. Wingfield was chosen president by the council, and this tempest-tossed band of unlucky, unsuitable, and quarrelsome adventurers planted the germs of a great nation at Jamestown. The planting would have proved vain indeed 
had it not been for the one despised and excluded counselor, whose ready tact, valor, and indefatigable zeal were to save Jamestown from the mishaps and destruction which the folly and selfishness of its leaders so often invited. Chapter 3. Powhatan and His People Rumors of a white people who came over from the sea had reached the Indians of Virginia from time to time. In 1573, a Spanish vessel had sailed into the Chesapeake. The mariners had taken soundings, admired the many rivers and good harbors, and sailed away again. The inhabitants, doubtless, heard also of the unsuccessful settlements of the English on Wokokon and Roanoke Islands. At first those strangers, who were not known to be sick, and who had no women with them, were believed to be immortals that had not been born of woman. The Indians of the region, indeed, attributed all their ailments to wounds inflicted by the English with invisible bullets. Perhaps Harriet, one of the members of the first colony at Roanoke, had entered some of Powhatan's towns on those journeys in which he was accustomed to show and explain the Bible to the Indians, who would kiss the book and press it to their heads and breasts as an amulet, or great medicine. The dress of the Indians in the mild climate of Virginia was rather scanty. The aristocracy wore little else than moccasins and a mantle of skin embroidered with beads, which was exchanged for one of fur during the winter. Pretty mantles were also made of turkey feathers, interwoven with thread in such a manner that only the feathers showed. The women covered themselves with an apron of deerskin. The common sort had little but leaves and grass for clothing. In summer, nearly all covering was dispensed with by rich and poor. What the Indians lacked in clothing was made up in paint and ornaments. They colored their heads and shoulders a brilliant red with a mixture made of powdered pacoon root and oil. Women tattooed their skin with figures of beasts and serpents. But ear pendants were their most important ornaments. They had usually three large holes in each ear from which they would hang chains, bracelets, and copper. Indian women were seen with strings of pearls hanging from the ear to the waist. A man would sometimes wear as an ear pendant a small green and yellow snake, crawling and tapping itself about on his neck. He was the most gallant that was the most monstrous to behold. What little beard the Indians had was grated away with oyster shells by the women. An Indian bow would spend hours plucking his whiskers out by the roots. The weapons, tools, and utensils of the Aborigines were such as we do not see among the Indians of today who trade with the civilized people. Tomahawks were made of deer's horn, or of a long sharpened stone set into a handle somewhat like a pickaxe. Arrows were stone-pointed and winged with turkey feathers, which were fastened with a glue made from deer's horns. Their only armor was a shield made of sticks or bark, woven together with thread. The women made thread either of bark, deer's sinews, or a kind of grass. Knives were made of stone, and sometimes shells and reeds were sharpened for this purpose. A pile was made of the tooth of a beaver set in a stick. The Indians kindled a fire by shaping a dry pointed stick in a hole made in a piece of wood. 
mortars were hollowed from stone, and in these corn was pounded into meal. An extensive quarry in which stone vessels and implements were made has recently been discovered in Amelia County, Virginia, and the method of work is shown to have been very ingenious. Corn bread was the staple food among the Indians. Bread was also made of wild oats and of sunflower seed. Fish, deer, turkey, and other game were their meals. Grubs, locusts, and snakes were also included in the bill of fare. Potatoes and the Tuckahoe root were eaten. Tobacco and corn were planted by the Indians. The manner of planting Indian corn was something new and strange to the English, and is thus described. The greatest labor they take is in planting their corn, for the country naturally is overgrown with wood. To prepare the ground, they bruise the bark of the trees near the root. Then do they scorch the roots with fire, that they grow no more. The next year, with a crooked piece of wood, they beat up the weeds by the roots, and in that mold they plant their corn. Their manner is this. They make a hole in the earth with a stick, and into it they put four grains of wheat, Indian corn, and two of beans. These holes they make four foot one from another. Their women and children do continually keep it with weeding, and when it is grown middle high, they hill it like a hopyard. The corn harvest was celebrated by the festival of the Green Corn Dance. The Indians delighted in roasted ears of corn. They made a drink of dried hickory nuts, pounded in a mortar and mixed with water. This liquor was called Pacohicora. From the Indian cookery, Americans have borrowed hominy, barbecued meat, and the southern dish called pone, as in corn pone. The Indians dwelt mostly on the river banks and always in villages. Their cabins or wigwams were framed of saplings tied together and covered very handsomely with reeds, bark, or mats. Across the entrance a mat was sometimes hung for a door. In the center of the cabins a fire was built, and, says Captain Smith, they were very warm, but also very smoky, notwithstanding the hole in the top to let out smoke. Indian towns were fortified with palisades, ten or twelve feet in height. The Virginia Indians worshipped an idol, or oki, which represented the evil spirit. They had also, like all of their race, some vague idea of a superior spirit or creator. Their priests or medicine men controlled them through their superstition by means of divinations and conjurations, by which they professed to cure the sick and thus lived a life of indolence themselves. The savages seldom dared steal from one another, fearing that their priests might reveal the thief through divination. The rude temple in which they kept their oki was surrounded with posts on which hideous faces were roughly carved or painted. The Indians divided their year into five seasons, budding time, roasting ear time, summer, the fall of the leaf, and winter. Their rather unmusical instruments were a reed on which they piped, a rude drum, and rattles made of gourds or pumpkins. These, mingled with their voices, says Captain Smith, make such a terrible noise as would rather affright than delight any man. The Indians amused themselves with sham fights or war dances, accompanied with the war hoop, 
which seemed quite infernal to the English. Captain Smith says that all their actions, voices, and gestures, both in charging and retreating, were so strained to the height of their quality and nature that the strangeness thereof made it seem very delightful. When the Indians had a distinguished visitor, they spread a mat as the Turks do a carpet, Smith said, for him to sit upon. Upon another, right opposite, they sit themselves. Then do all with a tunable voice of shouting, bid him welcome. After this, do two or more of their chiefest men make an oration, testifying their love. The English invested savage life with all the dignity of European courts. Powhatan was styled king or emperor. His principal warriors were lords of the kingdom. His wives were queens. His daughter was a princess, and his cabins were his various seats of residence. The extent of his conquests, his unlimited power over his subjects, and the pomp which he maintained, invest Powhatan with no little savage dignity. He was, as described, a tall, well-proportioned man, with a sour look, his head somewhat gray, his beard so thin that it seemeth none at all, his age neareth sixty, of a very able and hardy body to endure any labor. In his younger days, Powhatan had been a great warrior. Hereditarily, he was the chief or werewants of eight tribes. Through conquest, his dominions had been extended until they reached from the James River to the Potomac, from the sea to the falls and the principal rivers, and included 30 of the 40 tribes in Virginia. It is estimated that his subjects numbered 8,000. The name of his nation and the Indian appellation of the James River was Powhatan. He himself possessed several names. His proper personal appellation was said to have been Wahun Sonakak. His enemies were two neighboring confederacies, the Manahoics, situated between the Rappahannock and York Rivers, and the Monicans, between the York and James Rivers, above the falls. Powhatan lived sometimes at a village of his name, near where Richmond now stands, and sometimes at Werewokomoko, on the York River. He had, in each of his hereditary villages, if we may believe the stories of early explorers, a house built like a long arbor for his especial reception. When Powhatan visited one of these villages, a feast was already spread in the long house, or arbor. He had a hunting town in the wilderness called Oropax. A mile from this place, deep in the woods, he had another arbor-like house where he kept furs, copper, pearls, and beads, treasures which he was saving against his burial. Powhatan was attended by a bodyguard of forty or fifty tall warriors, while, says Captain Smith, every night upon the four quarters of his house are four sentinels, each from other a slight shoot, and at every half hour one from the corps on guard doth hollow, shaking his lips with his finger between them, unto whom every sentinel doth answer round from his stand. If any fail, they presently send forth an officer that beat him extremely." The war-hoop thus described by Captain Smith is still in use among certain tribes of Indians. Powhatan was proud of his fleet. It consisted of a large number of the canoes called dugouts, which are common among some tribes of Indians. 
The making of these boats was a laborious process. Trees were felled by fire, and from the trunks a boat was shaped by means of burning and scraping with shells and tomahawks. Powhatan had twenty sons and eleven daughters living. We know nothing of his sons except Nantiguas, the most manliest, comeliest, boldest spirit ever seen in a savage, according to Smith. Pocahontas was Powhatan's favorite daughter. She was born in 1594 or 1595, which would put her, at his arrival, at twelve years old. Of her mother, nothing is known. Powhatan had many wives. When he tired of them, he would present them to those of his subjects, whom he considered the most deserving. Indians are frequently known by several names. It is a disappointment to learn that the name which the romantic story of this Indian princess has made so famous was not her real name. Pocahontas was called, in childhood, Meadowax, or Meadowak. Concealing this from the English because of a superstitious notion that if these pale-faced strangers knew her true name, they could do her some harm, the Indians gave her the name Pocahontas. Powhatan's authority, like that of all Indian chiefs, was held in check by the severity of custom. The laws whereby he ruleth, said Captain Smith, is custom. Yet when he listeth, his will is a law, and must be obeyed, not only as a king, but as half a god they esteem him. Each village and tribe had its respective chief, or werewants, as they were called among the Powhatan Indians. The affairs of the tribe were settled in a council of the chiefs and warriors of the several villages. Every town possessed its council house, just as the villages of New England have a town hall. Here the chiefs and old men assembled for consultation on any important matter. Powhatan was the great werewants over all, unto whom, says Captain Smith, they paid tribute of skins, beads, copper, pearl, deer, turkey, wild beasts, and more. What he commandeth they dare not disobey in the least thing. It is strange to see with what care and adoration all these people do obey this Powhatan, for at his feet they present whatsoever he commandeth, and at the least frown of his brow their greatest spirits will tremble. And no marvel, for he is very terrible and tyrannous in punishing such as offend him. It was a barbarous life in which the little Pocahontas was bred. Her people always washed their young babies in the river on the coldest mornings to harden them. She was accustomed to see her old father sitting at the door of his cabin, regarding with grim pleasure a string of his enemy's scalps, suspended from tree to tree and waving in the breeze. Men in England in her time idealized her into a princess and fine lady. In our time, Historians have been surprised and indignant at finding that she was not a heroine of romance, but simply an Indian maiden. Such as her life made her, she was in her manners an untrained savage, but she was also the steadfast friend and helper of the feeble colony, and that is why her life is so full of interest to us. As we move from part two to part three, I wanted to add a little bit of context for you, so you can better picture what's going on on the southeast coast of the U.S. in 1607. First, the English were hell-bent on keeping up with Spanish exploration, 
and they wanted to colonize North America and mine for gold, not knowing, as the Spanish had already figured out, that the flatlands surrounding the Chesapeake Bay and its tributaries were all tidal lands containing lots of sand and mud, but no gold. This was the third expedition to the New World, the other two having landed south of Jamestown, down in today's North Carolina, on the inner coast, on Roanoke Island, which is located west of the long strip of sand that we call the Outer Banks of North Carolina, across from Hatteras, and near Manteo, which is mainland of North Carolina, about 15 miles across the Currituck Sound. Roanoke Island is often confused with the city of Roanoke, Virginia, which is way inland and not a factor in early settlement. The first two expeditions were disasters, the first resulting in the wiping out of an Indian village and killing of some of its older inhabitants in retaliation for the stealing of a silver cup. The Indians were petty thieves to a fault, and it caused a lot of problems for them. A second expedition failed as well. The third expedition is today called the Lost Colony, because after a group of colonists were dropped there, a return effort didn't make it for three more years, during which time the tiny colony disappeared, leaving the words, Croatoan, carved on the palisade walls. They had been instructed by White to leave a Maltese cross behind if they were forced out, and there was no cross. So the assumption was that they left to join Manteo's friendly Croatan tribe. You can catch that whole story over at 1001 Heroes, starting with the Lost Colony, first episode, The Dare Stones. In a nutshell, I think Sir Walter Raleigh planned their disappearance. He had made great friends with Chiefs Manteo and Wanchis previously, who were brought to England in 1584 after the first expedition, along with tobacco, maize, and probably sassafras, the roots of which the Indians had learned to use to make a cure-all for everything from dysentery to syphilis. And the English were very anxious to get their hands on a cure for syphilis, which they had contracted in large numbers and were busy spreading to every known port in the hemisphere. Raleigh was to discover from Chief Mantio that not only was Sassafras a cure for syphilis, but that Mantio knew where there were huge concentrations of tall Sassafras trees just south of Roanoke Island, in an area called Beachland today, around Lake Matamuskeet, with a way in for ships and deep water dockage with access to whatever they could harvest. This, one can suppose, Raleigh no doubt kept a secret. He could make a fortune having this cut and having it shipped, and he owned the ships. The charter that Queen Elizabeth had granted him gave him the land, but he needed intelligent men in there working it. The idea probably came to him during the planning stages of the White Expedition, now called the Lost Colony Group. That colonization expedition in 1587 was to bring a colony of men, women, and children to the Chesapeake Bay area, up around present-day Norfolk. But, as we now know, they never made it that far. They ended up back at the previously abandoned fort on Roanoke Island, where the 1584 expedition and later 1585 expedition had left 15 men behind. Later, Powhatan was to tell Smith that those whites had been living with an enemy tribe which was located in present-day Virginia Beach, and that they were killed and that tribe destroyed when Newport ships were spotted entering the Chesapeake Bay for the first time all based on a premonition that Powhatan had had. The white group ended up at Roanoke Island because Simon Fernando, Raleigh's most trusted captain, and the captain of their ship, 
took them there instead of the Chesapeake Bay area, saying he had been told by Raleigh to check for any survivors from the last expedition, those 15 men. He dropped anchor off the outer banks, fearing to pass the shoals, and sent John White and others in a smaller boat to check the fort, meaning that White had to row 15 miles across the sound to find the abandoned fort, which he did. He returned to the ship and reported that no survivors had been found, just one skeleton, and as previously mentioned, the words Croatoan carved on the palisade walls. In England three years earlier, chiefs Mantio and Wanchis had created quite a stir in the king's court in their native breaches, and Raleigh was milking the show for investors all along, like a carnival sideman. He raised a lot of money for future expeditions that he would put to good use. Now here it was in 1587 in present-day North Carolina with White and his group, who had been traveling for two and a half months. And they told Captain Simon Fernando, Raleigh's captain, that they wanted to continue northward to the bay to find a place for a settlement. But Fernando now refused. White suspected that Fernando wanted to head back out to sea to capture some Spanish ships before the weather changed. They argued. Fernando, for some mysterious reason, would not budge on the issue. But Fernando did bend enough to bring the ship in through an inlet and stayed with the little colony, surprisingly, for two weeks while they reestablished a settlement at the abandoned fort on Roanoke Island. Fernando was acting, no doubt, on Raleigh's orders. Raleigh had seen the potential of planting a colony there, then having Mantio persuade them to move further south to safety from warring tribes. That further south being the area of swamp and forest known to have large concentrations of sassafras trees for harvesting, which would make Raleigh, who was already wealthy, much wealthier. Raleigh could keep them there in that wilderness for a long time before they'd ever be discovered and make a lot of money in the process as his ships passed the coast of North Carolina on their trade route from the Caribbean to Europe. Besides, he'd be doing White's group a favor, placing them under the protective shelter of the Croatan tribe and giving them an industry to thrive on. All this subterfuge and secrecy is just a side note to the John Smith and Jamestown story, but it all ties in. I thought it was important to tell you. We'll be back with Part 3 next Sunday night at 1001 Stories for the Road. Thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. And here are a few recent reviews. Hey, John, I've written to you before stating how much I enjoy 1001 and how exceptionally well-read the stories are. Jack London, Anderson, Zane Gray, etc. Some of the best stories ever told by who must be hailed as one of the best orators. <laughs> you don't become overly loud as, as most Americans do and excellent diction. But alas, I just can't listen anymore. I'm not very fast on the skip forward button, as if I hear, Hi, I'm Jamie. One more time. I'm going to go nuts. And then I had to delete the next sentence. It was great before Jamie came along. I hope they pay a lot to advertise, because I feel there are a lot who agree. Sorry, John. Al Baru, Australia. That's all, it's all right, Al Baru. Thank you very much for getting back with your review. And Progressive Insurance has been a fantastic support for this show. So I'm asking you and all the other listeners not only to get along with Jamie, but to make sure that you've checked out Progressive Insurance for your insurance needs. They're a terrific company, and they're backing us and making these shows possible. So all I can say, Al Baru, is thank you for the kind review. I'm going to ask you to stick with us nonetheless and enjoy and use our sponsors. I stuttered all through that. 
Next one, thank you, five stars. I stumbled across 1001 Podcast a while back, and I've been binge listening for about three weeks. Now, when I was a kid, my mother used to read to me. We lived in general Alaska, no TV. Your ability to tell stories is incredible, and I've enjoyed every story and bits of history I've never heard before. Thank you. I'm 49 years old and drive for a living, so literally have three or four hours of listening every day. And that's from the Snow Goat 69 Apple Podcast, U.S. in Alaska. Thank you, Snow Ghost. Safe driving out there. Better weather's around the corner. And this one, five stars, fantastic. I greatly enjoy all the 1001 podcasts. This rebranding and reformatting of Stories for the Road is excellent. I love the single chapter podcast, allowing you to really listen to the stories at a relaxed pace instead of them being shortened to fit. John, you've done it again. Five stars. That from History Buff 102, Apple Podcast, Great Britain. Thank you, History Buff. I appreciate it. And this one, great podcast, five stars. Very interesting and informative so far. Can't wait to hear them all. And that one from Lindsay1228, Apple Podcast, U.S. Guys, keep them coming for 1001 Stories for the Road. We really do need reviews over there. And we appreciate your support. And you too, Al We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.